And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The Gospel according to St. Luke, the 12th chapter, verses 19 through 21. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, beloved, our theme for this morning is wisdom and folly. Wisdom and folly. Foolishness and wisdom. What is wisdom? And what is folly? If anyone on earth made this theme their specialty, it was King Solomon. Writing under the pseudonym Kohelet, translated in the ESV as preacher, though it could also be translated as assembler or collector, Solomon gives us one of the strangest books of the Bible with Ecclesiastes. And though we read it through in the daily office, we did not too long ago, if I remember, Today is the only Sunday I could find in the entire lectionary that Ecclesiastes is read in church. So, if there's ever a day we got to do a little wrestling with Ecclesiastes, it's today. So get ready. Here it is. Now, the lectionary politely omits the first half of chapter 1. doesn't want to scare us too much. Uh, But I want us to feel the force of Solomon's opening lines, beginning with verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In these verses, we are immediately introduced to the two great recurring phrases of Ecclesiastes. Vanity and under the sun. Vanity and under the sun the sun. Keep those in mind. Now the word vanity here should not be understood as we tend to use it today. That is the beauty-obsessed posturing that has given birth to a universe of Instagram posts. It's a sermon for another day. Rather, the word for vanity here could also be translated as vapor, breath, empty, or without purpose. And the translation vanity of vanities is intentional. It's trying to get across what Solomon's saying in the Hebrew, which is like vanity squared. The vanity to end all vanities is what he's saying. One commentator I read gave his own translation as completely meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And we see in verse 14 of our passage that the preacher further emphasizes what he's trying to say with the phrase, striving after wind. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, there's that phrase again, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, when I think of striving after wind, I think of trying to fly kites with my dad as a kid in Mariana, Florida. There was this uh, flat couple of acres of land that we'd drive out to, and apparently there was like a community of kite flyers, apparently that happens. Uh, Because I'd see other folks out there flying all these wonderful varieties of kites. I'm sure you've seen them if you've ever been to the beach. 
like different shapes and colors and designs. Um, I loved superheroes as a kid, so I was really excited to see like a Batman kite or a Superman kite just soaring through the air. But have you ever tried to get a kite going? Or perhaps more importantly, have you ever watched someone fail at trying to get a kite going? Most grown-ups kind of get the concept and they're able to get it working, but it always seems to be younger kids trying out kite flying for the first time who haven't yet grasped that important balance of speed and tension that you need to get sustained flight. And watching someone fail to get a kite in the air is probably one of the most depressing things you could ever see. And it's one of the most defeating things to experience, let me tell you. That desperate struggle, racing down the field, inevitably getting the strings tied around like your arms or legs, and the kite just flails along behind you like a wounded animal. And you get to the end of the runway, and you're panting, and you're out of breath. You have nothing to show for your efforts but a crumpled-up kite at your feet and the lingering taste of complete humiliation. While everyone around you has magnificent Superman and Batman kites soaring through the heavens, you see I speak from experience. Well, this is the striving after wind that Solomon is speaking of. The unhappy business of the children of men under the sun where nothing is new. The weariness of fruitless toil of Adam's curse. Beloved, have you ever felt caught in a cycle of fruitless toil? There's probably not an environment better suited in all the world for giving that sense of fruitless toil than the modern office space. I can testify to this, having spent my fair share of time in several different office spaces. Summers during college, my first job out of college, my part-time job at seminary, my first full-time job after seminary, all spent wedged within slightly different shades of gray cubicle. I still remember the day I decided to start drinking coffee. I was being trained for the only job I could find with an English degree in 2010, that of collections in a random office building in Troy, Alabama. Up to that moment, I considered coffee to be the strange, bitter mixture that my dad drank every morning before going to work. But that day, I understood why he drank coffee. Because you will drink just about anything to take the edge off of that monotony. And before long, friends, it wasn't just coffee I was drinking to get through it. Though thanks be to God and the support of friends and my precious wife, I did finally kick the habit that I picked up while working collections in small town Alabama. But we can talk more about that later. Feel free to find me. But we see in Solomon's grand experiment here in Ecclesiastes, he too spends some time in his cups. I said in my heart, we read in the first verse of chapter 2, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Solomon describes how he not only becomes an admirer of the sauce, but an investor, an entrepreneur. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Solomon attains to that most envied of statuses today, that of the successful pleasure seeker, the wealthy connoisseur, the Bruce Wayne, Elon Musk types who can buy Twitter on a whim and still have time to jump on a rocket ship for afternoon tea in space or whatever it is they do. 
It's a status so desirable we call those who reach it celebrities. Now in the church, we celebrate Holy Communion. But the world celebrates other things, unholy communions. There can be, bless you, there can be no fellowship between the two. Let me remind you, there can be no fellowship between darkness and light. But Solomon attains all of it. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And note that this isn't just pure frivolousness. He's not just partying the whole time, right? For he says, my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So he was a workaholic as well. In fact, he's a lot like the rich man that we heard in our Lord's parable in the gospel reading, isn't he? The rich man who saw the plentifulness, the abundance with which the Lord had blessed him and could only think about how much more he could store in bigger barns. There's a restaurant, which shall remain nameless, that Laura and I drive by almost every day. A fairly successful restaurant. It's quite popular. And one day, they just tore the building down. Didn't make sense. Everybody loved going to that restaurant. But then eventually we see that they rebuild the same restaurant in the same location, but just about 20 feet in this direction to maximize parking space, it seems. You see, there seems to be this assumption in the world that if we just suck the marrow out of everything that this world has to offer us, one day, one day, we'll be able to say to our soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But did you notice how the rich man phrased it? He says it hypothetically. And I will say to my soul, this rich man just wants to get to a place where he can finally relax. He wants to get to a place where he can finally enjoy all the avenues of merriment that are at his disposal at any moment. But he can't because it's empty. It's empty. It's meaningless. There's no meaning to it. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. T.S. Eliot <coughs> speaks of this vanity in his magnificent set of poems, The Four Quartets. He refers to this twittering world, ironically, where he says we are distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning. Distracted from distraction by distraction. I can't think of a better way to describe what happens in this world on a daily basis. And I'm guilty too. We all are. This isn't just about the wealthy. It's not even necessarily about wealth. What it's about is idolatry. What it's about is idolatry. <clears throat> in our epistle reading, St. Paul writes to the saints in Colossae, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's easy to miss, but St. Paul just casually equated covetousness with idolatry. It's not immediately obvious, but it's a connection St. Paul is familiar with being a faithful student of Holy Scripture. 
For example, we can read in Psalm 135, verse 15, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Notice the materials the idols are made of. Silver and gold. Pull out a dollar bill sometime. You can stare into the eyes of Washington, but he can't see you. He can't hear you. There's not a breath of life in that green piece of paper. And yet we work ourselves silly trying to get as much of them as we can. So that one day, one day, we can say, soul, we did it. We have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And this approach to life in the world would make sense. It would, except for one important variable. There was a man who lived and died during the reign of Pontius Pilate who rose from the dead. Now nothing's the same. What do I gain, St. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? It's a good question. There are critics of the faith who will try to say all sorts of things about the Son of God, that he never lived, for example, that he never died, that his resurrection was really just a metaphor, some kind of really excellent moral parable. But they seem to forget that moral parables become far less compelling when you're facing down starved lions in the Colosseum. When a wild animal is about to have you for dinner, it suddenly becomes very important whether or not the Nazarene named Jesus actually rose from the dead or metaphorically rose from the dead. For as St. Paul said, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And for the early church, Christianity was not the place to eat and drink, at least not as the world does. For their food was the body of Christ. Their drink was his blood. That was the church's only feast. And it was enough. It is enough. Remember the two key phrases of Ecclesiastes, vanity and under the sun. It's true there's nothing new under the sun. But there is one, beloved, who came to us from beyond the sun, from the heavens, in fact. One who has no need to strive after the wind and get a kite in the sky because he himself has ascended on high. The new Adam who breaks the curse of fruitless toil and gives the call to his followers, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. The one who has no need for barns, for he himself is the bread of life. Who, while the rich man strives after an infinitely unattainable relaxation, has reserved a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest that no amount of dividends or promotions or high-yield wealth management accounts can secure. The Holy Spirit tells us in our psalm this morning, Psalm 49, in fact, if you would, please turn there in your prayer books, that red prayer book, to page 330, Psalm 49. 
beginning with verse 6. Page 330. It's too good. It's too good. There are some who put their trust in their goods and boast in the multitude of their riches. But no one can deliver his brother nor pay unto God a price for him. Do you see the psalmist is trying to reorient your priorities? For it is so costly to redeem their souls, you want to talk about cost? That we should never have enough to pay it so that they should live forever and should not see the grave. For we see that wise men die as well as the ignorant and foolish. They perish alike and leave their riches for others. And yet they think that their houses shall continue forever and that their dwelling places shall endure from one generation to another. They call lands after their own names. The sons of Korah conclude, man is like an ox that has no understanding. He's like the beasts that perish. This is the way of their foolishness. Our theme this morning, beloved, is wisdom and foolishness. Remember what the Lord said to the rich man, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? The barn expansion project had every indication of worldly wisdom. What else do you do with abundance except multiply it, we ask in the 21st century. But the Lord names the man, and that name is Fool. Wait. If that guy's a fool, then what does wisdom look like? Well, we see in verse 21 of Luke 12, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? In 1 Timothy 6, St. Paul is writing to Timothy about how Timothy should exhort the wealthy under his charge. And he writes this in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus, you want to talk about treasure? Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Remember what Psalm 49 had to say about idols? I'm sorry, Psalm 135. Strangely, they have all the trappings of life. They have eyes and ears and mouths, but there's no actual life in them. That is a clue. That is a hint built into the fabric of reality. Have a staring contest with Benjamin Franklin on that $100 bill. He will never blink because he's not alive. The green stuff can't give you life. It can only give you the appearance of life. It can make the dead bones jump and dance, but it's just a puppet. There is someone else pulling those strings. But for those who do recognize the need to be rich toward God, who very much want to be free of the vanity of the striving after wind, there is a wonderful paradox waiting for you. 
Because the riches toward God are not the works you bring to him. Beloved, he brings the riches to you. In Ephesians 1, St. Paul tells the saints in Ephesus that he's praying for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches? of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Beloved, the riches are yours. The riches are yours, purchased for you. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And here at this table, strangely enough, you can rest, you can eat, you can drink, you can rejoice. For while tomorrow you may die, on Sunday you rise. For indeed, you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Alleluia.